Where do you see your career in 10 years? What are you doing now to help you get there? The sooner you start enhancing your skills, the sooner you'll be ready. That's why AARP has reskilling courses in a variety of categories like marketing and management to help your income live as long as you do. That's right. AARP has a bevy of free skill building courses for you to choose from because the steps that you choose to take today will help you to love what you do in the future. And that's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. In recent weeks, we've really focused on some ways that listeners can boost their income. Uh, so whether that's through starting your own side business and growing your network like Hala talked about, or when we talked with local realtor Alan about diving into investing in real estate, well, what better way to test the waters? While you are away, your home could also earn extra income. That's right. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. It's a lot easier than you think, and you don't need to Airbnb your entire house. You could just host your extra spare room. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I'm Matt. And today we're talking about behavioral finance with Daniel Crosby. Schedule. Today, we are excited to be sitting down with Dr. Daniel Crosby. He is a psychologist and a behavioral finance expert who helps folks understand the intersection of their minds and the market. Daniel is a New York Times bestselling author on behavioral finance, and his latest book, The Behavioral Investor, looks at the psychology, physiology, and sociology of financial decision making. That's a lot of ologies. <laughs> a lot of ologies. It, he sets forth practical tips as well for making improvements. And so when he's not consulting around market psychology, Daniel enjoys exploring the American South, fanatically following St. Louis Cardinals baseball, and spending time with his wife and three children. So Daniel, thanks for being here, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. You mentioned the cards. Didn't they womp the Braves a few days ago? Did you watch that game? Well, I was at all of the games. Were you? But then the Braves womped the Cardinals the second two. Uh, but there okay. was a streaker at the second one, so it was uh, still worth it. Okay. I saw some video <laughs> yeah. of that. Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> it was a non-nude streaker who made it all the way from left field to home plate and then got crushed by one of the Braves security. <laughs> I who, love the video of that. Security people always just hammer oh, them. He <laughs> crushed him over a half brick wall. It was incredible. Like, this is my moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and he slipped. He broke his knees. Like this guy, he was coming out at him. He juked him. He oh, slipped. Okay. Then he got back up and laid the tackle on him. So go, go Braves uh, security <laughs> guard. Wow. That's awesome. I think that that might be the most you'll hear us talking about baseball. We, we tend to talk about <laughs> soccer here on the podcast. We're yep. unintentional hipsters, I think, but we, we're trying not to be. <laughs> Great soccer city. Yeah. By the way, Daniel, thanks so much for bringing beer. Daniel brought Atlanta Brewing Company's Hoplanta for us to have on the show today. So yeah, we really appreciate you bringing yeah, it for us. Yeah, we'll share our tasting notes on that one at the end of the show. So the first question we ask anybody that comes on the podcast now, Daniel, is since we do drink a beer on every show, it's something that we splurge on. What is like the craft beer equivalent in your life? Uh, so it's it's cheese. Oh, uh, so okay. so my wife and I, we we average seven different types of cheese in no our way. house at, at any given time. So we are love cheese. We uh, we prices no object. We just buy what we want, and it's absolutely uh, a blast to try different types of cheese for us. So that's our thing. It's your splurge. That's also worth noting, it's also a consumable. What yeah. is it about things that we consume that I don't know? We, we derive a lot of pleasure from. 
the senses, right? Like cheese. I assume. What kind of cheese do you like? Oh, we I, we like Dubliner cheeses. Though no, I don't love the stinky stuff. <laughs> okay. Our favorite sort of easy go to is the Dubliner cheese. We we tried it in Dublin for the first time, and it's like got good family memories from a family oh, trip nice. I took there. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Not nothing too stinky though. We're, okay. We're, <laughs> That's cool. All right. Well, we want to ask you too, like, why did you decide to get into thinking about money and you received your doctorate in psychology, but you've turned your focus to kind of investing in, in uh, behavioral finances. So like what spurred that on in you? Yeah. So um, not wanting to be broke is the easy answer. So the, um, I, I had two great loves early on in college. One was investment management. I'm the son of a financial advisor. So just grew up in a house where we were always talking about investing and stocks at the dinner table. Uh, so grew up with a real love and, and a real familiarity with, with that whole world, uh, but was also fascinated by human behavior. And so I went uh, through my doctoral program, got about halfway through and had just had enough of, of being a clinician. You know, I'd met with thousands of clients and I was frankly just stressed out by it. You know, the, the, the rigors and just the, the tough slog of seeing 40 or 50 people a week who are having a very bad week. Uh, was just beginning to take its toll on me. And so I said, look, I love thinking about human behavior. I love wondering about why people do what they do, but is there a non-medical application of this? And so my dad, being who he was, I stumbled upon behavioral economics, behavioral finance uh, pretty early on, uh, and it's been a great ride since. Mm. Were you bored by the financial discussions at the dinner table when you're as a kid? No, I actually loved it. And it was one of those things where, you know, in my in my fifth grade um, stock market game simulation, I dominated. <laughs> right. And so, nice. you know, having, having my dad help me out. And I remember investing in the Chicago Tribune and these different stocks, Harley and these different stocks early on and, and watching it go up and just thinking how amazing it was that I could make money off of other people's work. <laughs> I mean, that was like, as a, yeah. as a young, lazy kid, I was like, wow, like other people are working and I'm getting paid and I'm clipping coupons and getting dividends. It was just transformative to me. So I actually quite loved it. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your book, The yeah. Behavioral Investor. In that book, like in the first portion of it, you spend a lot of time talking about our bodies and mm -hmm. our minds and society as well. Why do you find that that's so important to, to focus on uh, in particular when it comes to investing and making those decisions? Yeah. So I, I, I tried to take a big step back with this book because, you know, most people, uh, maybe they give some thought to psychology, but they give very, very little thought to context. And so one of the things that, uh, that I have learned in my study of the, why we make the decisions that we do is that willpower is very limited and that context matters a great deal. You started off with, uh, with uh, talking about the beer that I brought. So I'll give an example from a liquor store that was uh, trying to titrate the, the inflows and outflows of the different types of liquor. They found that the type of music they played was the best <laughs> predictor of what people would buy. So they're trying to manage how much wine or champagne or beer they have. On days that they played German music, uh, the consumption of beer went up over 50%. On days when they played French music, the consumption of champagne went up wow. over 75%. But if you ask someone leaving the store, like, why did you buy this beer? They're not going to say, you know, I was subtly influenced by environmental cues. Mm -hmm. So we go through our days and we make all these choices sort of beneath our awareness. And so I wanted to highlight, you know, societally, physiologically, here are some of the things that are impinging on your ability to make good financial choices uh, because I thought there was sort of a gap in the literature around that. So yeah, that's a great example. I think that actually helps us see how our brains are susceptible to having things that aren't necessarily self-generated to make a decision. Um, and so uh, when it comes to our brains, why is it that our brains play tricks on us and why does that make it hard for us to be actually savvy, decent investors? So one of my favorite stats that I, that I came across in the book was that your brain accounts for about 2 to 3% of your body weight, but it accounts for 25 to 40% of your metabolic expenditures in a given day. So 25 to 40% of the calories that you burn uh, in a day are down to thinking effectively. And so because there's this enormous mismatch, your body is always trying to go into energy saver mode and be more efficient. And the ways that we do this is basically by shutting the brain down, like trying to think less. 
So we do things like we look at our neighbors and see what they're doing and we try and do that or we turn on the TV and see what the financial talking heads are telling us we should do. We draft off of the opinions of others or we do what we've always done or we do what our parents do. We're just not equipped to really make well-thought-out, well-reasoned financial decisions uh, again and again and again uh, because there's this huge mismatch between how hungry our brain is and how big it is. And so that, to me, is, is an incredible, uh, and it was an incredible thing to learn. You know, the other thing I learned is that we lose 13% of our intelligence, <laughs> 13% of our IQ, when we're under financial stress. So even if your brain's fully loaded, right, even if your brain is, is locked and ready to go with all the right financial education that you need, when, when the risk hits the fan, so to speak, you're dumb. Like you, you have mm. least access to these things when you need them most. So your brain is not, not too well equipped to be a, a savvy financial decision maker. Yeah. Even though you know those facts, you know what you should be doing when, yeah, like when, when the stuff hits the fan, yeah. You, yeah, you are incapable of making the proper decision. One of the other things you mentioned uh, in your book as well was how we're wired for more of that immediate gratification and how we have a really tough time thinking beyond that. And that again, makes us terrible long-term investors, right? Yeah, it does. There was a, a fascinating study and Merrill Lynch actually bought this technology. There was technology that allowed you to age your face. So like you could take a picture of you and then it would make you look like you were, you know, whatever, a hundred years old. Joel loves that app, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> my, co my coworker literally the other day took a picture of me. Oh, really? He was like, he's like, stand still. I'm going to take a picture of you. And I had no idea what he's doing for. And he turned me into a girl. The I guess there's an app that does that yeah. too. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. You still get carded, don't you? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. So what they found though is so when people were able to envision themselves older, they dramatically upped their retirement wow. savings because most of us think, you know, we're going to be this age forever. And the me that exists today is the me that will always be. But we have to really get a more visceral sense of a of a future self that's going to want vacations and food and, you know, a, a warm place to sleep just as much as today you does. And that's hard for us to get our minds around, right? And so anything that we can do to kind of get a better picture of that future self is powerful, but it's nothing we do very naturally. Yeah, I think, yeah, most people in their 20s and uh, looking back to when I was in my early 20s, I, I was kind of abnormally interested in this stuff, but most people, it's just, you think you're invincible, you think you're going to live forever when you're 22. And that's just not the case. And But that's the most important time to start getting invested too in the stock market to start thinking about the future. Uh, but that's often the time that people are least thinking about the future. Yeah. The, the world of investing is full of these paradoxes, right? Like 22 is exactly when you need to be started uh, building a compounding le financial legacy. And at that point, your prefrontal cortex isn't even fully formed <laughs> and you don't even fully grasp the relationship between cause and effect. And I think if we all look back to college, we can we can bring to mind instances <laughs> where where this was on full display. But yeah, you're you're well positioned to start saving, but not psychologically. So Daniel, uh, you talk some in the book as well about the primacy and the recency effect. Can you explain that a little bit when it comes to investing? You know, we're talking about age and how certain things uh, affect how we view money and just things in general. How does it affect how we view investing? Yeah. So the primacy and recency effect is this uh, notion in psychology that's backed up by the literature uh, that we have a the best memory for things that happen early on and things that have happened recently. And so this is true of even conversations. You go have a conversation with a friend, you're going to have the best memory for sort of the, the opening gambit. And then the last thing that you said before parting, it's also true of our, our investing lives. So, you know, we look at someone like, I'll use myself as an example. So, uh, you know, I went to a lot of school, so I didn't really get my first job until I was about 27. And so I get out, get my first job when I'm 27. I start saving. I get a 401k. And then within a year and a half, it's the great financial crisis. Mm. So, you know, you're just getting started. You think you're doing the right thing. And this nice little nest egg you've built up is crushed, right? It's down 40%. And then, you know, bring it to today. And we'll go back to Q4 of, of 2018. Again, we're down 15 or 20%. So someone like me, if they're not careful and if they don't sort of automate good practices, could say, look, the first thing that ever happened to my money was it got, you know, went, went down a third. Uh, recently, we've had more volatility. Therefore, the market is a scary, dangerous place. Forgetting that, you know, there's also been a whatever, a 400% increase in that time as well. So we have to be careful because memory plays tricks on us. And especially 
I think millennials and others who who have started saving at an inopportune time or a time when they had uh, traumatic first experiences uh, can be in a little trouble. And you know, the, interestingly, the inverse is true too. You see some people who come out and confuse a, a bull market with a big brain. So they got out in a year, you know, let's say they started saving in, in 2010 and they're like, wow, this is easy. Like all the stock market does is go up. I'm a genius. And so uh, either success or failure can actually be problematic. And we have to be careful not to let those early and those recent experiences loom too large. Do you think that that same principle can affect the way that we broadly view money, not just investing? For instance, you sitting around the dining room table with your dad, who's you know talking to you about stocks. Or for me, you know, I had a, an experience where my family didn't handle money well, and you know, we went through bankruptcy when I was 13. And that, to me, is like the line of demarcation of why I got interested in finances to begin with. How do those effects of primacy and recency affect us in regards to how we think about money in general? Yeah, so this is, I mean, this is a, a fascinating question to me. It's certainly the the lessons that we learn early take take deep hold. But what's fascinating to me is anecdotally what I've observed is is sort of both sides of this. There are people who grew up in in my situation, say, where, you know, this talk about money is ever present and they go, Oh yuck, you know, this is too that was too much. You know, that was too much. I don't I don't care about money. And there's people that grow up in your situation where there's a bankruptcy or something. And sometimes that's going to lead them to say, I will never let this happen to me. I'm going to educate myself. I'm going to be different. This will never happen to me. And then other times, quite naturally, they perhaps learn the bad lessons that they grew up with. So I wish I knew better what separated people who who run from one style versus those who adopt it. But I have seen in both cases there's always an impact. There's always an impact, but some people run toward it and some people run far away from it. But, but either way, I think you're absolutely impacted by those early experiences. Yeah, Daniel, if only we knew the, the depths of our minds and, and why it was that we behave that way, right? Yeah. Uh, so after the break, we're going to talk more specifically about investing for folks who are not investing at all, uh, things to watch out for. But as well, if you are already investing, we're going to talk about that as well. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you to get there? Well, there are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. What about that dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, your health and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at AARP.org slash wisefriend. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pumped for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host. Or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the Money app 
Monarch. They make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. And you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. Spring cleaning is kind of an annual rite of passage. We've all got to do it, minimize the junk that we have in our house. Emily and I, we just cleaned our closets out. It took hours, but it was so worth it. Now we've only got stuff in there that we love, and it's easier to find everything too. And so, you know, while cleaning your closets is helpful, well, there's something else you can do for your family this spring. Shopping for life insurance with Policy Genius, for example, is a really important part of your financial planning for the year. That's right. Yeah. And here is the thing that's important to remember because you might be thinking you don't need to check out Policy Genius because you've got a policy through work. But even if you have a life insurance policy through your job, it may not offer you enough protection for your family's needs and it may not follow you if you leave your job. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius works for you, not the insurance companies, and that means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. Save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. All right, we're back from the break. We're speaking with Daniel Crosby, behavioral finance expert. Daniel, I so thoroughly enjoyed your book. I think I geeked out on so many of the studies and the specific stories that you discuss in there. By the way, for our listeners, we're going to give away a few copies of his book at the end of the episode. So stay tuned for that. But first, I want to ask you about a story that you mentioned in your TED Talk and then also mentioned in your book. And it was about a woman named Brooke. You were helping her with a specific situation and she seemed to just bury her head in the sand about something that was happening in regards to college admissions. Can you tell us a story and then kind of how the, how we can learn from that? Yeah. So Brooke, not not her real name. Uh, Brooke was my first ever counseling client. And so to, to set the stage a little bit, I'm 23 three years old at the time, which I think we can all agree is a great time to be dispensing, <laughs> uh, you know, life advice to people. Yeah, come, I've got it figured out. So come, come and get Let's it. Let's refer back to the prefrontal <laughs> cortex. Right, right. Yeah, my prefrontal <laughs> cortex is still half baked at this point. So Brooke foolishly comes to, you know, comes to see me. She's literally my, the first client I have ever seen. And she comes in and she doesn't say a word. She hands me six envelopes, like six large envelopes. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like what, you know, what am I in for? This was not in the book. You know, this was what, what chapter was this? Because it's all book learning at this point. And, you know, she explains to me that ever since she was a little girl, she's wanted to be a, a doctor and she's applied to six uh, medical schools. She's heard back from all, all six of them. And she can't bring herself to open the envelopes because she, she feels like, if she finds out that she didn't get in, she'll be crushed. So, you know, having recently been through the grad school application process myself, I say to her, like, look, don't you have to let them know that you're that you're coming? Like, if you, if you did get in, and she goes, yeah, I've got like a week and a half before before I have to, you know, have have worked through this, open these, and have moved on. And so she opened them. And she got into all six schools, which really nice. saved my high. <laughs> you know, I mean, that could be a that could have been the end of my therapy career if she had gotten into none of them. But she got into all six schools. But the point that I made to her that that led her to open the envelopes is that sometimes in our efforts to to manage or mitigate risk, we bring about the certainty of the very thing we're scared of. And so in her case, you know, if she had the thing she was scared of was not getting into grad school and her tendency to not want to open these envelopes was going to guarantee the very thing she was scared of. For investors, there's there's an analog here because the thing that most investors are scared of is not reaching their financial goals, like not crossing the finish line. But 
the way that they manage that fear is by not investing, by sitting on the sidelines, by staying in cash, by being too conservative. And in a world where your money is being destroyed by inflation at a rate of about 3% a year, uh, choosing not to invest is bringing about the certainty of failure. You're dooming yourself to a diminished quality of life and diminished earning potential. So that's the analog I'm trying to make there. It's like by not taking risk, you're actually choosing the most risky possible road. That's right. Yeah. Not risking is the riskiest thing you could ever do. So for those folks, I mean, what do you say to them? Like to those folks who aren't investing and they do have their head in the sand and they're just trying to avoid making that decision altogether. Do you just say invest? <laughs> well, so it, it's interesting. There's a, I've used to be really bad at this because I would get frustrated and go, Oh, come on. Like you're like, why aren't you doing, why aren't you doing this? Like, you know, and you kind of bang your head against that wall, but we as a human family have a profound sort of get lost, uh, impulse when someone commands us to do something, Mm -hmm. you know, we kind of give them the finger, uh, you know, metaphorically when they try and tell us, command us to do something or tell us we're so dumb for not doing something. So what I do now is I listen. You know, I listen and say, you know, what are, what are the fears around this? And I try and empathize with those fears and people, once they feel understood, I feel like then they're open to having a conversation about the nuts and bolts of why investing is a good idea. But I find the same thing with diversification because here in Atlanta, I run across all sorts of folks who have 80% of their wealth in Coke or UPS or Aflac or any of the large corporations that are around here. And they're scared to diversify away from these really concentrated positions. And then when you start to listen, though, if you just say, look, you know, it's dumb. All of your eggs are in one basket. They, they're not responsive to that. But if you listen and, and hear things like, look, um, you know, this company took a chance on me when I had nothing and they've made me a millionaire. They've made me who I am today. You can go, oh, OK, you know, you can listen, you can empathize and you can go, well, it's still dumb. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but they're in a place to hear that, I think, once they've been understood. Yeah, I think, yeah, dogmatism can be a turnoff for sure. 100 um, percent. So, OK, so how does your investing timeline influence how we should think about risk when it comes to how we allocate our investments? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you definitely want to take less risk as you approach retirement. And you even within that, you want to take less risk with buckets of money that you need in the short term. You know, there's plenty of folks who are young people who are saving for, say, a down payment on a home or a, or a vehicle or something like that. You don't want to put that money at risk if you're going to need it in the next two or three years. Uh, because markets have historically returned, uh, you know, returned your investment quite nicely over ten or twelve years. You've you've never had an, a nominal loss in the stock market over a twelve-year period, uh, but over one year or two years, anything can happen. So yeah, you definitely want to take less risk, but we see people starting to change those assumptions now. You know, I have, we all have young children here, and I remember when my my two-year-old was born, the nurses told us, you know. of the kids that are her age will live to be over a hundred. Wow. That's shocking. That's crazy. No, it's shocking to think that let's, you know, you go to college until you're 22. Maybe you go to grad school until you're 24 or 25. You work for 40 years and then you got to live for 40 years off what you worked for. I mean, that's an incredible lift, right? And so historically the, the idea has been, and it remains a good idea to take less risk as you age. But we find that, you know, people even in retirement still need to hold stock because you're going to live for 30 or 40 more years in many cases. Yeah, it goes back to that idea that not taking enough risk is actually the riskiest thing you can do. Of course, yeah. Yeah, and and the other thing is, too, is with so much information at our fingertips when it comes to research and stocks and just all the publications that are out there and all the articles, at times there can be such an overwhelming flood of information and recommendations uh, as to what we should be investing in. How would you recommend to folks uh, to start approaching that? Like, how do you take that first bite? How do you narrow in your focus and decide what to actually invest in? So there's there's something called the Lindy effect, which shows that the longer something's been around, the longer it's likely to be around, okay? So like, if we look at today, um, Kim Kardashian has a book of her selfies, which is like right at the top of the, the book charts, right? And it's been there for a year. Uh, but I wouldn't bet that it'll be there in a hundred years. That's just my guess. <laughs> and yet you look a- at the- Agree to disagree. Okay? <laughs> agree to disagree. And yet you look at like great philosophical works or even, you know, books like The Richest Man in Babylon or something like this, these sort of classics. It's like if they have endured, they're likely to endure. And so I think that is a a sound principle when you're trying to understand 
uh, how to get started with with educating yourself about how to invest. There there are a couple of really good books that have been around for a really long time. Uh, they're, they're timeless principles. They're not going anywhere, and that is a great place to start. Books over articles, long form over sh- short form. Uh, I think podcasts like yours are another fantastic place to start. People who uh, don't have a reason to steer you wrong, because unfortunately, you know, so many people are incentivized to to give a, a brand of financial advice that puts money in their pockets. And unfortunately, in this country, we we still don't have a system where even you know some financial advisors, so called, have to act in the best interest of their clients, which is sort of an, an, an incredible thing to consider. So books that have been around a, a long time are a great place to start, and then uh, you know information sources like yours that that aren't conflicted and can give you a, a great unbiased starting point. Mm. Daniel, can I interest you in our life insurance that we're offering? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, Give me. on that note, though, do you want to recommend a couple of books? I mean, you mentioned The Richest Man in Babylon. It's a classic. Are there a couple other favorites of yours that I'm, you recommend to listeners? I'm going to, of course, blank. So the there is a link called the Nocturne Capital Reading List, which has some of the best uh, the best books. That I love that, that list of the best books, right? So that's a great place to start. Uh, I would recommend, of course, shamelessly, my book, The Laws of Wealth, <laughs> as sort of a good introduction. Uh, the Richest Man in Babylon, uh, Intelligent Investor uh, is, a, is a classic. That's the one that sort of got Buffett started. There, there's many others, though. Oh, mm-hmm. The Millionaire Next Door is another wonderful book. Another classic. Narrative. Yeah, another classic. I think you're so right, though. We have all this information at our fingertips, but it turns out that most of what people are reading is stuff that's been written in the last year or two. Mm-hmm. And all of these great resources that have proved true over time are the ones that we're avoiding. Um, and so that's to our great shame, really. And so I think anybody who's listening to this, picking up an older book that has stood the test of time is great advice. What other big hurdles do you see beginner investors face as they're just kind of attempting to, to dip their toes in the water and start? So I, I think two things. I think one is just getting started, right? You know, an object in motion tends to stay in motion. And the thought can be, you know, I only make whatever. I only make X per year. And so it'll be a drop in the bucket. It's not going to make a difference. And so realizing that inertia cuts both ways, that doing nothing uh, can lead you to do more nothing, but that even getting started, even in a small way, uh, can get you going. And then not knowing where to start. You know, not knowing where to start. I read the other day that there are now over 250,000 different mutual funds. So just doing something like a Vanguard total index, right? There you go. Start there. You know, something that's well diversified, something that's cheap is a great place to start. And you can figure out the rest later. But not knowing where to start, there is an, an overwhelming mountain of complexity uh, and, you know, not much of it is in, in, in the investor's favor. So just picking a place to start and getting started. But I think a, a world index, a, a total index is a great place to start. So that's great advice, right? For folks who have not yet started investing. For folks who are investing, but maybe aren't doing the, the best job, right? That's what we're going to talk about next. Uh, in your book, you mentioned how the Mona Lisa, it didn't become famous until 1911 after it was stolen. Probably my favorite story in the whole book right there. Was it? <laughs> I didn't know. And then I just got to wow somebody the next day about that. It was really cool. It's like, did you know? <laughs> um, so what does that antidote have to teach us uh, when it comes to our own biases? Yeah. So quickly, the story, so you can be impressive at cocktail parties too. The story, <laughs> yeah. the story is, you know, the Mona Lisa is the most talked about, the most reproduced piece of art around, right? And so we think it is that way because it's the best. Uh, but really, for a long time, it was sort of forgotten. It sat in this dusty recess of the, of the Louvre. And it was only once it was stolen... Uh, that it became sort of an uh, an item of nat- national interest, and you know people are talking about who done it, where did it go, why did why this piece, uh, and what's fascinating, it was three days before they noticed it was gone. They stole the Mona Lisa, and no one noticed for three days. Which is great, was, right? I, know, right? <laughs> I mean, can you imagine now, like you know, sirens two seconds later, uh, but three days later, you know, someone notices, oh, you know, there's a there's a dusty spot on the wall, and and it's missing, and so we think the Mona Lisa is is great. Uh, because we've heard of it, but really, uh, we having heard of it is what made it great. And so the point here is this: people tend to overinvest in what they know. Okay, we find this a couple of places. One one thing is called home bias. Uh, look at America. The average American tends to have about eighty five percent of their wealth in U.S. stocks, even though U.S. stocks only make up about half of the world uh, of the world stage of of equities. So we want to, in general 
have our asset allocation align more or less with the world, uh, the world stage. So we should be about 50%. We're closer to 85. We even see in various parts of the country, in the Northeast, people tend to be overweight financials. In the Midwest, people tend to be overweight agriculture. In Atlanta, people are overweight, you know, Coke and, and Aflac and things that they've heard of. And we think that we're doing ourselves a favor by buying what we know because it seems safer. This is human nature. Like, oh, I've heard of that. I know that. So yes, give me some of that. And we also overinvest in our own company stock, even when accounting for, even when controlling for, you know, employee stock ownership plans and things like that. So you're actually loading your risk. You know, let's use Atlanta as an example. You're here in Atlanta. You load up on Coke stock and UPS stock because you want to, you know, root for the home team. Well, your home value depends on how Coke does and how UPS does. You know, your local economy and your ability to stay employed in your local economy depends on how these large Fortune 500 companies do. So when we invest in what we know, we're typically triple loading that risk. And also, a lot of what's in the news is sort of sensational. You think about something like cryptocurrency, which has been all over the news lately. You know, it feels like you know it because you're hearing about it every day. And so it feels safe. Well, you know, love it, lo love crypto or hate it, it's volatile. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're, you're having heard of it doesn't guarantee uh, that it's safe. Mm -hmm. In fact, it, it, it guarantees that it's quite risky. Yeah, I mean, in the book you mentioned, is it Peter Lynch that had the uh, the quote of invest in what you know mm -hmm. and how, yeah, that in fact is pretty terrible advice when it comes to picking a stock or, or investing in something that you think will you know do well over the long term because chances are, yeah, like you said, you're just more familiar with it, not because it's going to be awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Buy, buy what you know is one of these sort of uh, easy Wall Street sayings that's actually quite dumb. Yeah. yeah. All right. So what about for experienced investors? People have been doing it a while. They, they think they're savvy. They have a good strategy. They know what they're doing. But often there are mistakes, even for people that have been investing for quite a long time. So what, what typical mistakes do you see a seasoned investor making? So it's just like we talked about earlier, how, uh, how early success can be the hubris that, that leads to the downfall. I think successful investors can get cocky or they can fall prey to this need to com complex complexify. That's not a word. But we're we're going to roll. We're, <laughs> make it. We're, yeah, we're going to we're we're making it a word today. Uh, they're going to need to you know want to make their investments more complex because they get bored, right? Like ah, I'm just holding these. You know, all you need is a handful of funds if you get the right ones. And like ah, what what am I going to do now? How can I put a sexier spin on this? And so I think the risk with with savvy investors or long term investors is is either that they get bored with sort of the plain vanilla stuff that they're holding and want to go into more esoteric paths, uh, or they get cocky. And one of the things that is, you know, I talk about sort of these four major behavioral errors in the book, and one of the big ones is ego. And you have to really, really in investing cultivate this beginner's mind, and you have to understand that the same uh, risk and fallibility and foibles that befall everyone else, you're just as susceptible to those things as the next person. And so thinking that you have it figured out is a real risk. And, and ironically, if you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, it's not me, I'm, I'm humble, I'm cool, <laughs> you're wrong. Right? Like, the, the more, the, no, the, I got this. It's cool. Yeah. If you feel implicated in this statement, you're probably okay. And if you don't feel implicated, you're in trouble. Mm. But it's like, you know, investing's full of paradoxes. All right. So this is super fascinating stuff. I'm really excited to get into kind of some specific questions that will, I think, hone in on how our listeners can apply some of these actual behavioral things that happen inside of us to specific actions they can take uh, when it comes to investing. So we'll get to that with Daniel Crosby right after the break. You probably think it's too soon to join AARP, right? Well, let's take a minute to talk about it. Where do you see yourself in 15 years? More specifically, your career, your health, your social life. What are you doing now to help you to get there? Well, there are tons of ways for you to start preparing today for your future with AARP. What about that dream job you've dreamt about? Sign up for AARP reskilling courses to help make it a reality. How about that active lifestyle you've only spoken about from the couch? AARP has health tips and wellness tools to keep you moving for years to come. But none of these experiences are without making friends along the way. Connect with your community through AARP volunteer events. 
So it's safe to say it's never too soon to join AARP. They're here to help your money, your health and happiness live as long as you do. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash wise friend. I'm guessing that a lot of listeners are starting to solidify their summer travel plans. We always like to get the families together, Matt, for a week yeah, at the we beach do. every single summer. We've already got that trip to St. Simon's on the calendar. Pump for that. But sometimes those vacations get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? That's right. Why let it sit empty when it could be earning extra income? It's the financially smart thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you've got some extra space in your home, or maybe you have an entire house to host, or maybe you're just going on vacation and your home is sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you have two options. You can let it just sit there empty, or you do some optimizing and make some money off it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Let's say you've been listening to the podcast and now you're finally ready to start implementing some of the uh, the financial morsels that we're dishing up. Maybe you are trying to save up some more money for a down payment on a house, or maybe there's a big vacation that you have been dying to take. Well, the money app Monarch, they make it so easy to help you to reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal, they named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, collaborate with your partner even. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. And you won't get spammed either. Monarch features ad-free privacy you can trust. They will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. That's right, man. And after trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. It just makes sense. It works. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash howtomoney for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash howtomoney for an extended 30-day free trial. If you're listening to this podcast right now and you're a small business owner, listen up. Upswell Marketing would like to remind you that when customers choose your small business, they're actually choosing you. So focus on super serving your existing customers and let Upswell handle the pipeline generation of new leads and customers. They do everything from hyper-targeting best fit prospects through campaign optimization. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads, and has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. Upswell specializes in developing customized direct response campaigns and is now offering a no-obligation free assessment of your current marketing strategies. Not to mention, new customers also receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com. That's upswellmarketing.com. All right, we are back from the break. Let's talk now uh, what our listeners need to do next. Daniel, we want to specifically talk about passive investing. Joel and I, you know, we, along with great minds like Warren Buffett, recommend a very basic approach to investing for most folks, in particular folks that are just getting started. Widely diversified, low-cost index funds. Um, what would you add to that? What advice would you give to folks? So I would say that, you know, I the active-passive debate is one that rages uh, quite ferociously in my world. Uh, there are a couple of things, I think, more than how active or how passive a vehicle is that I think you need to keep in mind. Okay, So one is rules-based. So part of why passive has won over long periods of time is just that it's systematic. And you find even among the best active managers, you know, folks like Jim Simons at Renaissance Technology, who has had, you know, absolutely eye-popping technologies and uh, returns rather, and none of us have enough money for him to take our phone call. <laughs> but, you know, he... He is, he says, we have a model and we follow it slavishly. So one is you don't want human discretion involved. You want a, an automated rules-based system or at least a, a system with a lot of rules and maybe a, a touch of human discretion. Uh, research I did in my book, The Laws of Wealth, found that over 200 studies were done on uh, comparing human discretion to simple rules and algorithms and found that 94% of the time the rules beat or match human level discretion 
uh, PhD level human discretion. And that's so, with no work. Yeah, like, that's like with you, no you work. You set it and you forget it, basically. Yeah. Like you follow those rules to a T. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you want you want something that's, that's rules based. And even when passive vehicles have gotten in trouble, it's because they strayed from their rules. Now, um, people don't know this, but the S&P 500 is made up of a committee, right, that selects who goes in and out. And they have these rules about, you know, it needs to be profitable. It needs to have this many years. And they have deviated from those rules. Historically, they they did to include AOL back in the late 90s. Oh, no way. Yep. And they got crushed, right? And they, so <laughs> you- it hadn't been around as long as they- Well, because it wasn't profitable. Oh, gotcha. But people were clamoring for it, right? Yeah. Because it was, it was the, the tech bubble and it was hot. And they're like, exactly. give me the AOL. And like, they, they, they buckled, right? And they did wow. what they shouldn't have. And then, you know, one year later, it dropped whatever, 90%. And they couldn't afford to send CDs around to all their houses anymore. <laughs> so oh, yeah, man, you want us that annoying dial-up noise. <laughs> yeah. So you want something that's rules-based. You want something that's you know uh, has a reasonable fee. You're gonna pay more for small cap. You're gonna pay more for international exposure. So don't get so hung up on you know a three basis point fee that you that you can't get the exposure that you need. But you want it to be rules-based. Uh, you want it to be a low fee. Uh, those are the those are the biggest things to me. Yeah. So when you're talking about rules, it makes me think of, of one rule would be to automate it. And dollar cost averaging is one of the ways that most of us do that through a 401k or through just an automatic you know, ACH deduction from our one of our checking or savings accounts. And it goes to hopefully a low cost brokerage account uh, company uh, into a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA or whatever it is. So what what other rules besides just keeping it automatic and and doing it consistently, what other rules should we implement to ensure that we're investing well? So I, just a quick plug for automation. There's nothing better that you could do than automate. You know, one of the things that my research has shown is that our willpower is just so much weaker than we think. And so automation is, is the number one thing that I would tell you. Uh, the second thing I would tell you is sort of counterintuitive and it's to, it's to celebrate wins. You know, I feel like some people, this journey to financial freedom is a long journey and it takes a ton of money. And I saw research the other day that says people are spending on average $250,000 uh, in retirement on medical expenses outside of insurance premiums. I mean, wow. you just need Man. tons of money. <laughs> you just need tons of money to retire. So celebrate wins along the way because it really, really is a slog. And so, you know, my family and I were, were very disciplined, but we recently hit a, a big milestone for us and we're going to go splurge a little. We're going to do things we don't usually do. And it's going to hopefully give us that next, you know, shot of adrenaline to go the next leg of the race uh, because it's a very, very long race. And I think you want to automate, but you want to you want to congratulate yourself because saving is hard. Investing is hard. One of the big points I make in the book is that everything we're asked to do, right, to take on risk, to take on uncertainty, to take money that we could spend today on stuff that would be fun and put it aside for old man Daniel, who's not very real to me. All of this is psychologically difficult. So make sure you give yourself a break along the way. I do want to hang out with old man Daniel. Old man Daniel's okay. going to be sweet. Man. Old man Daniel's going to be sweet. Probably have some nice cheese at <laughs> yeah, his side as well. Yeah, just cheese, every, <laughs> cheese for days with that. Cheese in a rocking chair. <laughs> So also, you, you don't have nice things to say about investment managers. They have bias as well. Should an investor ever pay an advisor? Or is it just silly to shell out his fees? Okay, so I, uh, I work for an investment manager, so I have to be careful here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, so I, I say in my book, The Laws of Wealth, you need a financial advisor, but not for the reason that you think. Okay, most people, when they hire a financial professional... They think the reason that I'm bringing this person on is because they're going to pick hot stocks for me. They're an investment wizard. All of the research shows that uh, that is not the case, right? Uh, financial professionals make the same dumb mistakes with their money uh, that we do with our money. But the research also shows that people who work with a financial professional tend to do 2 to 3% uh, a year better than those who don't, even net of fees. And that's because they're a behavioral coach. They keep you from doing the stupid thing. They, they encourage you to, to do the hard thing. So I think about 10% of the world does not need a financial professional in their corner or does not need a robo-advisor or any sort of advice. They're going to figure this stuff out. They're going to do it by themselves. They've got the di discipline. 10%, another 10% of the world on the other end are just degenerate gamblers. And then, like, there's, the, there's not, you know, there's not enough good advice in the world to to save these folks. But for a lot of people in the middle, whether it's 
uh, you know, a full service financial advisor, whether it's sort of the on-call financial advice that's available now through Schwab and Vanguard and other people for as little as 30 bucks a month, or whether it's a robo-advisor, most of us need some sort of framework. And you can ratchet that up or down depending on how disciplined you are. Uh, but I would say that almost all of us need some sort of handholding, some sort of guidance. And that is the number one thing that an, that an advisor or an advisor light does. Uh, and it's behavioral coaching and not asset selection. Because you can, I mean, you can take this weekend, read five books and figure out how you should allocate your assets. It's quite easy. Mm-hmm. It's very, very easy to get a low cost diversified portfolio. It's much harder to stay the course. Right. So it's not, like you said, it's not the asset allocation part of it. It's the behavioral part of it. That's the tricky part. Yes. Um, I mean, is that not where you feel that a robo advisor could, you know, for a low cost kind of keep you on that path of making sure that you're, you know, you've got your pie selected and you're rebalancing and you're, you're sticking to what you want to invest in. Would that be a way that folks could, could save money and, and not pay higher fees potentially? So there's, there's really three things that I think folks need. They need education, you know, to, to do the right thing. And a robo-advisor provides that. Uh, they need the right environment, which is the portfolio in this case. The robo-advisor does that as well as anyone. Um, and they need just-in-time advice. They need someone to like slap the bad decision out of them at the, at the inopportune moment. And so that is where I think that robo-advisors candidly are a little unproven, just because most of them have only existed in a relatively uh, sanguine market, right? It's been a very good run for as long as the wealth fronts and betterments of the world have been around. Now, Betterment in particular is doing really cool stuff with behavioral finance. Dan Egan is their head of behavioral finance, does an excellent job and does things like you know, if someone's about to sell, the, the robo-advisor will pop up a thing that says, here are your tax consequences if you sell. And people go, yuck, like, you know, right. I hate paying taxes, <laughs> yeah. you know. And so then they're induced oftentimes to, to stay the course. So there are subtle nudges that I know that robo-advisors are, are working on. But I think for some people still, you need Bob down the street to call you up to come to your house and say, hey, man, chill out. So I think that for some people, it'll work. For some people, it won't. And I think that robo-advisors are still kind of untested. And nobody's more excited to see how they do than me when we're, you know, we have a 40% leg down. Yeah. I mean, I remember during the Great Recession talking to coworkers uh, and people were panicked. And a lot of folks that I knew just weren't willing to stay the course. They they just couldn't handle the heat in the kitchen. And they said, I have to sell. I have to make some changes. I have to put more of my money in cash because I just, I can't ride this ride anymore. And I do think that you're right, that the number one reason to consider having a financial advisor is if you have a personality where you are unable to stay the course, where you're unable to obey those rules that you've set for yourself. I think in a perfect world, because Matt, recently on the show, we talked about fees and the importance of fees, right? When you include a financial advisor in that, oftentimes the fees become excessive and a lot of people just don't have the... A lot of people won't can't even be seen by a financial advisor because they don't have enough money, sure. right? And then there are a lot of people who balk at the fees because that hurts returns over time. But I do completely understand your sentiment. And I think it makes a lot of sense that a lot, a lot of people are unwilling to continue abiding by their rules and to continue to invest consistently, even through the hard times, even though that's the most important time to, to continue to be invested. So I think that makes a lot of sense. If you look at the, the research on the behavior gap, so the, the delta between uh, the returns of the equity markets and what the average equity investor gets, it's usually somewhere around 40 to 50%. So like over the last 30 years, S&P's given you eight and a quarter percent. The average investors kept like four and a half percent of that. Because so, they're in and out. Because they're in and out. So uh, paying an advisor 1%, which is admittedly a lot, like paying an advisor 1% is a lot if you can do it by yourself. But if it saves you a 4% delta, then it's well worth it. Mm. And so it, it comes down to sort of being candid about your level of, of discipline and willpower. Uh, and that's a, that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. It's a hard thing to look in the mirror and go, yep, I'm the, <laughs> I'm the one, <laughs> I'm the biggest problem. I, I'm the doofus that's going to sell at the wrong yeah. time. And yet, you know, most of us are. So mm. yeah, it's, it's almost like we don't need a Bob down the street. We need a Terry Crews to like come and like totally check us. Right. <laughs> <laughs> to flex his pecs and tell us that yeah, we better stay the course. You better not sell. <laughs> so Daniel, for most folks though, that don't have a ton of money, right. Then maybe they've got five or like 10 or 20,000 even, right. Like that's not a ton of money to be seen by an individual 
advisors sometimes. What advice would you give to someone in that situation who is looking to be a better passive investor? How do you set up those rules that you mentioned earlier? Yeah. So the first thing, and this is again, a little non-traditional, I would say to invest in yourself, you know, the, you, you can't bleed a stone. So it takes income to be a successful investor. And so one of the most powerful things and most ignored pieces of financial advice is take an online course, you know, go back to school, do what you need to do to get your income to a place where you can save more. So that's investing in yourself always pays great dividends. Uh, the, the next thing uh, that I would say is again, just get started and you can, again, take a lot of risk, I think, when you don't have much to set aside. Just pick, find one or two funds that are going to cover the waterfront of the whole world for very, very minimal fees. Uh, get, get that going and make sure that it's automated because once it's automated, you never know you miss it. You never see it, uh, and it. And it won't hurt. You avoid the pain of saving because all of my research has shown there's a lot of psychological pain with you know, taking money and going, well, I'm going to save this now. You avoid that pain of saving when you automate the withdrawal process like you talked about before. So invest in yourself, automate it, and celebrate those wins along the way. Yeah, I think if you're in the wealth building phase of life, like you just said, like you don't have tons of money, whether you're 20 or whether you're 45, you can afford to take on more risk with your investments. You don't have to be in a target retirement fund that's exactly matched to your age because you won't have as much risk. And really what you want, you want exposure at that point in time where you're beginning to invest no matter what age you're at, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Daniel, thanks so much for, for joining us today. We've really enjoyed talking to you about behavioral investing specifically. I mean, there's just so much in play other than just knowing the right decision to, to, to make. There's so much in play kind of between our ears, right? Like our own minds are oftentimes the, uh, the, our worst enemy. So we really appreciate you sitting down with us. Yeah, it's been, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, thanks for coming in, man. All right, Matt, that was a super fun conversation. I mean, like, honestly, I truly enjoyed Daniel's book. I think I'm just fascinated by the way our brains play trickery on ourselves. <laughs> and, and ultimately, it ends up hurting us as, as humans and as investors, right? It's just fascinating, fascinating conversation. Yeah, it's, it's definitely true, man. Uh, let's go ahead now, move on to our beer. Daniel was gracious enough to uh, show up with some Atlanta Brewing Company's Hoplanta, which is an IPA and... Will you ever get tired of IPAs, Joel? <laughs> nah, man, never. And this one was was interesting. It had a nice little citrus zest kind of to it, but it also had kind of that classic IPA bitter taste as well. So it kind of balanced, in my opinion, the, the new style of IPAs and the old style. And I think it did it quite nicely. And plus, it's a hometown beer. We got to love it. Yeah, we're pretty much always going to be uh, fans of local Atlanta breweries. And this one was Atlanta's first original brewery. So... They actually recently changed their name back to Atlanta Brewing Company. Joel, you remember when they were Red Brick, uh, but they were Red Brick there for a while, and then they kind of changed back to that moniker, Atlanta Brewing Company. Yeah, so. th those were sad days when they were Red Brick for multiple yeah. reasons. Uh, the beer wasn't very good either, but they've got a new brewer uh, at the helm at Atlanta Brewing Company, and I mean, their beers have just gotten a whole lot better. The branding is, is sweet, and I, yeah, I thought this beer was great. All right, Matt, and it's time to give away three copies of Daniel Crosby's new book, The Behavioral Investor. And if you nerd out on kind of psychology, physiology, and just kind of how that affects, you know, how we invest, then you will really, really like his book. And he was kind enough to not only donate the beer that we had on the show today, but, but also to have donated three books for our listeners to get. And so, Matt, you want to go into the details of how folks that are listening can qualify for the book giveaway? Yeah, Joel. Uh, like we've done in the past, what you need to do to enter into the book giveaway is head over to Apple Podcasts and just leave us a solid review. And if you're not an Apple person, if you're an Android person like me, you know what? You can also leave a review at Stitcher. Yeah, We'd you can do Stitcher. That. And you can do that through your web browser. So you don't even have to do it through the app on your phone. It's super simple. And once you leave that review there for us, please send us a quick email at howtomoneypod at gmail.com, letting us know as well as your screen name that you left that review under. We'll have that giveaway going all this week, and we're going to close that down on Friday at 5 p.m. We'll announce that new winner on the next Monday's episode. So thanks in advance to uh, everyone for doing that. Sweet. All right. Time to close out another good episode. Oh, and by the way, we'll have show notes up for this episode on our website, howtomoney.com. So Joel, I think that's going to be it for this episode, man. Until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. 
I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut. Every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.